Okay. Now for something completely different again. <laughs> um, although there are there are connections, perhaps we can uh, talk about those in the questions. Um, okay, so in this paper, I am aiming to trace a transatlantic and indeed cosmopolitan relationship between three literary figures um, up on the screen there: Natalie Barney, Rene Vivian, and Olive Custance. Um, the latter two were English, um, although I'm slightly obviously going to be troubling that today, um, who were primarily poets um, and writing in decadent and symbolist modes mostly. Um, but Viviane uh, constructs a French identity for herself, um, but she actually remained Pauline Tarn, her, her given birth name, um, not only to her friends and lovers, but actually to, mo to most people she encountered. So um, it's worth thinking about René Vivian as a, a similar in a way to, for those of you that know Michael Field, to a, I suppose, a literary identity that enabled her to also, you know, to also really enter a very different kind of psychological space in order to write. So none of these figures actually knew her as René Vivian that I'm going to be talking about, which I think is quite significant. Um, Barney was an American heiress uh, who ran one of the most famous uh, and indeed notorious Parisian salons um, starting at the beginning of the 20th century and hosting uh, many writers of the fin de siècle and modernist um, groups. And she also wrote memoirs that I'll be drawing on, plays and aphorisms that have been, um, often many people say that they are reminiscent of Oscar Wilde's aphorisms. So Barney and Vivian met in Paris in 1899 um, and theirs was a turbulent liaison that lasted on and off until 1904. And Vivian uh, worshipped Barney as her, as her muse and as her inspiration, but Barney refused to give up her promiscuous behaviour, causing much uh, pain and suffering for Vivian and causing the breaks between them. Olive Custance was one of several women that formed a third term in their um, triangle or menage a trois. Um, and she uh, was involved with both women, as I'll be um, saying, before uh, marrying Lord Alfred Douglas. There's the connection. <laughs> unfortunately, she was unfortunate enough to know uh, Team WH Crossland rather well. Um, and <laughs> so she married Douglas in 1902. So my paper's going to be focusing on a year, really, uh, 1900 to 1901, when these three women um, are entangled in various liaisons and are travelling between Paris, London, Venice, and the slightly less glamorous Norwich um, in, in Norfolk. Um, the period, uh, this time period results in several indirect literary collaborations. So you have Vivian's uh, Romana Clay, A Woman Appeared to Me, from which I take my title, um, and poems by Custance and Barney that I'll be drawing on. Um, and this, this menage a trois was so inspiring that at one point the women considered setting up uh, a, commun a lesbian community on Mytilene um, in Lesbos, um, a cosmopolitan queer utopia, I'm calling this, that never came to pass, but that exists, I argue, um, in the collaborative spaces that are opened up by their work during this time period. This is a space that Shari Benstock in Women of the Left Bank refers to as Paris Lesbos. But I'm hoping to show the various ways in which this extended beyond Paris into other European places and spaces. Um, and in the latter part of my paper then, so I want to um, briefly consider how the understanding of national identity plays into all this, um, particularly the writing in and aff affectation of Frenchness and how that interacts with expressions of lesbian <laughs> desire. 
So um, of all these women, Custance is certainly the one I, I know best, but I am aware that she's um, probably less well known um, to many people and she's, prob she's probably the least written about of all of these figures. Um, she was born in Norfolk uh, to an aristocratic family. She had a similar kind of background to Lord Alfred Douglas. Um, she'd already made her literary debut during the 1890s and she published several poems in the Yellow Book. Her first collection, Opals, was published by the Bodley Head in 1897. Um, and Barney uh, was introduced to her through this book. Um, so Barney is in <coughs> London um, in November 1900. Um, and in her memoir, Souvenir, Souvenir Indiscret, um, Barney recounts how she travelled to London with René Vivian uh, and visited the Bodley Head bookshop. Um, and she was actually seeking a copy of Henry Thornton Wharton's um, translations of Sappho. Um, but while there, then picks up this other book. So Barney writes, While I was browsing through books at John Lane's bookshop come publishing house, he recommended that I read Opal, a first poetry collection by a young poetess in Norfolk, whose second collection he was about to publish. I was taken by a number of the poems, so much so that I wrote an admiring letter to the author, sending her copies of Etude et Prelude uh, and Quelque Portrait Sonnet de Femme. Uh, Opal responded with fervour, for I would dance to make you smile and sing of those who with some sweet mad sin have played and how love walks with delicate feet afraid twixt maid and maid. Now these, these lines of verse are, are, have been the absolute bugbear of my life for about the past six years because they don't actually turn up anywhere um biographers and things of Bar of barney and vivian sometimes cite them to opals but they don't they don't come from opals and, and they're not in any of cousins's collections and i haven't found them in an archive so if anyone comes across this anywhere please tell me um they do however arise in vivian's romana clay a woman appeared to me and they are sung by Custance's counterpart in that novel, who is called Dagmar. Um, so I do wonder if since Barney's memoir was published in 1960, perhaps she just simply got confused somewhere along the line and attributes this um, to real-life Custance um, because of Vivienne's Romana Clay. I'm not really sure. And I think this also underlines how in this group, fantasy, memory, rumour... Um, and reality are very difficult to disentangle um, and it's not particularly helped by the number of popular scandalising biographies about, about this circle. Um, so for her part, um, if it's, oh, that's the one. Yeah, that's the one. Um, so Custance was clearly flattered by this and she writes to John Lane, and this is how I know actually whenabouts this was actually taking place. I had an adorable letter this morning from a beautiful American girl, the author of a new volume of poems, which she sent me called Portrait Sonnet de Femme. She has read Opals and fallen in love with my soul, it seems. I don't think it really was. It wasn't all soul, I don't think. Um, <laughs> she's not like Houseman uh, Barney, I don't think. Um, so, as Barney recounts, then she and Vivienne invited Custance to come to Paris with a view to setting up, quote, and this is from Souvenir Indiscreet, um, a group of poetesses around us deriving inspiration from one another, as Sappho did on Mytilene. Um, and I'm quite... Uh, oh, how have I got onto this one already? Oh, oh yes, that's the one. Um, sorry, I'm getting confused. Um, so... Although no biographer um, so far has noted this, it seems that Custance may have visited Paris earlier than, um, than we think. So I think she may have actually gone there in late 1900, shortly after receiving this letter. For she writes to Douglas later on in their courtship, 
beautiful prince, I am sending you a little page d'amour to wait upon you. It is the only photograph of myself I have. It was taken last winter in Paris to please my little American friend, Natalie Barney. And though I am briefed out as a pretty boy, it is thought by some to be rather like me. Um, so I think that, although we know she was there in the spring, I think she may have been in it there in the winter. And I think that this on the left may be the photograph. Um, this has to, all of these turn up randomly on the internet, on Pinterest and various things with very little um, detail to accompany them. Um, so it's a bit naughty of me to put them up there. But this, this is believed to be Custance on the left here. And as you can see, I can't remove the, you know, the kind of dodgy website stuff that's still on there. This website, this website no longer exists, but used to exist. And I had some correspondence with the person who put it together, who said, well, I don't really know where the image originally comes from. So, um, and now it doesn't exist anymore, but I did manage to find it again. Using this one as the source, then I turn back to this image, which is in George Wicks's biography of Barney. And this person kissing Barney has not been identified. Some, some people think it's Leander Poogie, who, um, who Barney had a thing with earlier. But if you obviously cross-reference it with the other image, I think it's Custance. So Custance kissing Barney has been in front of me on, you know, on my desk for several years, and I've only realised that <laughs> in working on this paper. Then I came across the, the third image. Um, I believe these two have been taken at Otto Wegener's studio in Paris, where Barney is known to have um, had various portraits of these kinds um, taken with other friends. Um, and uh, I think this may have taken place in the winter that, that Custance talks about in her letter to Douglas. If not, then possibly spring 1901, when we know that she definitely did go there, and that's where it um, all gets even more heated. Um, in response to Barney's uh, letter of admiration, um, Custance also sends her um, a poem that is inspired by a portrait of Barney, which was reproduced as the frontispiece to um, Kelko Portrait Sonnet de Femme. Um, so this is a portrait of Barney that was painted when she was aged 10, and she was inspired by Oscar Wilde's um, fairy tale, The Happy Prince, um, and asked to be painted as him. So what Wilde is, Wilde is in there too. Um, and this is Custance's poem that she sent to Barney, inspired by the picture and the lines that Barney um, reproduces are <coughs> italicised. So it's called The White Witch. Um, her body is a dancing joy, a delicate delight, her hair a silver glamour in a net of golden light. Her face is like the faces that a dreamer sometimes meets, a face that Leonardo would have followed through the streets. Her eyelids are like clouds that spread white wings across blue skies, like shadows in still water are the sorrows in her eyes. How flower-like are the smiling lips so many have desired, curled lips that love's long kisses have left a little tired. And as I've argued at length elsewhere, um, this, this poem, The White Witch, is a portrait of Barney as the archetypal femme fatale seductress, um, comparable to Wild Salome in many ways. And Custance also draws on Swinburne's Faustine, um, particularly in the final line, uh, which echoes Faustine's curled lips long since half kissed away. Um, but Custance here in this poem combines the femme fatale with the boy androgyne, um, obviously inspired by the, the portrait of Barney. Um, the poem's reference to Leonardo in particular indicates a distinctly male homoeroticism, particularly when read in the context of Pater's essay, Leonardo da Vinci, in which um, he writes about the artist pursuing curious beauty in both men and women through the streets of Florence. So Custance's poem combines Barney's um, ice 
blonde femme fatale image with the boyish painting, creating a figure of ambiguous perversity. So here the boundaries are blurred between child and adult in, in very disturbing ways, I think, male and female, sapphic and male homoerotic desire. Barney, after reproducing these lines, claims that Custance's poem sparked off a kind of competition, with Vivian seeking to write her own sonnet inspired by the same portrait. Um, and I don't know, because it's probably quite small, but I've included the, the, the original French and the translation there. Um, and the first, um, first stanza is, Your royal youth has the melancholy of the north, where fog washes out all colour, discord and desire and tears intermingle in you, grave as Hamlet, pale as Ophelia. So Vivian's poem um, also plays on Barney's double <coughs> nature, her combining of masculine and feminine qualities, fluidly moving between Hamlet and Ophelia. The final line states, now one, then the other, then both at once. So in both of these poems, we see um, masculine and feminine roles of particularly the page, the prince and the princess um, being used interchangeably and the lines between those blurred. Um, and these were roles um, that were frequently uh, embodied in Barney's, um, Barney's photographic uh, masquerades um, that she engaged in. So this is um, Barney um, dressed, as, dressed as a prince here, and then you've got Vivian um, and Barney with the sort of, um, you know, we've got the kind of, I suppose, the, the prince admiring the princess, perhaps. Um, this has been written about at length by Carla Jay, by the way, if you're interested in the, in the Amazon and the page. So they're using the dynamic of courtly love in order to express sapphic desire there. Um, Barney uh, also draws on these roles in her unpublished love poems to Custance, um, which I came across in the, in the New York Public Library in the Berg Collection. So this poem, which I, won't, which I won't read to you, but it's accompanied by the note, To My Little Princess. Um, and as you will see in the poem, Barney refers to herself as the sad prince who is lying at the princess's feet, adoringly. Um, the Petrarchan or Neo-Petrarchan sonnet form seems appropriate for this kind of um, courtly love dynamic that's being described here. And the fairy tale theme continues in the second stanza with the reference to awakening, quote, the sleeping beauty in that golden lute to your body. And I think that the lute also has a slightly kind of sapphic um, uh, edge to it as well. Um, Vivian also drew on fairy tales in her short stories. Um, so there's a 1904 story um, entitled Prince Charming, in which the princess Sorolta marries Turka, who turns out to in fact be a woman in disguise, um, disguised as her brother, the prince. Um, and Vivian, uh, in much of her work, is revising um, cultural myths. Um, she has um, her excellent creation story, The Profane Genesis, for example. Um, but I think through, through Prince, Prince Charming and the fairy tales, you know, she's also intervening um, particularly in French literary culture. Um, for, of course, it was Charles Perrault, um, his Sleeping Beauty, that's um, often regarded as introducing the, you know, the idea of Prince Charming or Prince Charmant. So, um, so I think that there's, you know, there's, a, there's a gender revision and um, an intervention into French literary culture there. Um, as I've written about again at length elsewhere, Custance draws on the prince, the page, and the princess in her correspondence with Douglas, which began in June 1901, so there's still an, an overlap there. Um, she'd already fantasised about 
um, Douglas during her trip to Venice um, with Barney in the spring of 1901. And she spoilt their romantic break um, by hanging a photograph of a statue of Antinous, presumably picked up at one of the museums, I, I imagine, over her bed, which she claimed reminded her of Lord Alfred Douglas. So um, <laughs> Barney wasn't best pleased by, by that. Um, and the, the scenario uh, resulted in the poem Antinous, um, which Custance published in 1902. And the first line is, I spoke of you, Antinous, with her who is my heart's delight. So from the, from the first line, we're thinking, oh, there's, there's, you know, there's two beloveds here. Um, what's going on? And this, this triangle later resulted in the, the weird suggestion that Barney married Douglas um, because Douglas was looking for a rich American heiress to marry and this would enable them all to, he'd get his American fortune and everyone would be able to carry on being involved with um, their, their current liaisons. Um, but this was something that Barney's father rejected because of Douglas's you know, reputation in, in America. Um, so just another letter where uh, Custance draws on these, um, these roles. So uh, you know, what I'm suggesting is, is that she'd actually really developed these roles in her sapphic relationships and then was using them to seduce Douglas. Um, so here she writes, I am only your little page, your little page with brown hair and blue eyes, almost the colour of that blue flower you sent me. And then later on, it's from the little princess opal, since you call me a princess. Um, so she's showing how she can be the page and the princess, and Douglas does not need to choose um, which one he'd, you know, which one he'd prefer. Um, and this dynamic is later infuses her poetic sequence, Songs of a Fairy Princess um, of 1902, which was written during and after her courtship. Um, and the two were married in, in March of 1902. And again, I've, I've written more about that elsewhere if you're interested and if you want to talk to me about it afterwards. But I want to draw towards the end by thinking more about the question of national identity in this rather complex um, set of relationships. So I think all three women um, held flexible and indeed cosmopolitan ideas about nationality that are related in many ways to their unconventional sexualities. Um, and Melanie Hawthorne um, has been very generous with me and shown me a chapter of a book she's currently working on, um, which um, is a chapter about René Vivian. It's René Vivian, French poet, question mark. Um, and as part of that chapter, um, Hawthorne talks about how sexual types and, you know, the, the homosexual becoming a species, to draw on Foucault, is happening at around the same time that national identities are being increasingly um, monitored and, and solidified. Um, but that women have a very strange position within that because women's nationality is often defined either through the father or through the husband. Um, and so there's a looser and less defined sense, perhaps, of, of national belonging, and that this can free women writers up to imagine other, um, other national affiliations, um, or perhaps multiple, multiple boundary-crossing affiliations. Um, and this was something that Vivian um, very clearly engaged in. So um, this is Vivian explaining her French identity um, in an interview with a French woman, so. Uh, I was born under an, an unlucky star. I love France and I am not French. I am English and I can't like England. My father was Scotch. That's not actually true, he was from Yorkshire, it, it turns out. Um, yeah. My mother was born in, in Honolulu. Um, my real name is Pauline Tan. I changed it to Renee Vivian. 
Um, and she goes on to say, I'm infected with the romantic fever. Uh, it began in my teens when I read Baudelaire in secret in a country boarding school in England where I slipped away by climbing over the wall. Um, so many, many critics and biographers of, of Vivian have, um, have talked about her adoption of French identity as a way of rejecting parental authority. She had a, a problematic relationship with both parents. Um, and Tama Leah Engelking um, writes about, for example, quote, her decision to write under a French name is further evidence of the distance she sought from her fatherland, father's name and mother tongue. Um, so she not only she changed the name, she makes you know the geographical um, change and you know writes almost ex exclusively in French. Barney, of course, also preferred to write in French, um, and she explains why, which is helpful um, in her preface to Portrait Sonnets of Women. Um, so she writes, quote, I have lived too much of my everyday life in English to preserve any feeling for that language. Writing French verse comes naturally to me. And she later suggests that she might be possessed by the spirit of French poets. Um, and it's, so it's this sense that the language has become dead to her and in order to particularly write about, you know, the passions and um, that she wants to write about, that she needs this, this new language. Um, French literature was, of course, also associated with novels, particularly of lesbian content, poems of lesbian content. Gautier's Mademoiselle de Maupin, uh, works by Balzac, uh, Zola and Baudelaire, and obviously I, I could go on. So for both Barney and Vivian, um, French was the perfect language for forging this new identity away from their mother and fatherlands and expressing a sexuality um, outside of and beyond heterosexuality. And this is, this is where things become a little bit strange because a lot of biographies talk about Vivienne's rejection of Custance um, because of this ambivalence about Custance's Englishness. So Barney very excitedly describes Custance arriving in Paris and she talks about how embracing her was like embracing the English countryside. Mm -hmm. um, and Vivian acts kind of awkward and then later on tells Barney that she doesn't like to hang out with other English people, um, that she, you know, she loathes, loathes them um, simply because they are, they are English. Um, but this doesn't really hold up because in the winter of 1901, Vivian and Custance become romantically involved um, during the time that, um, that Vivian comes back to England. Um, and Barney and Douglas are in America at the time. Um, so they spent the, they, Custance and Vivian spent November, October and November in Norwich exchanging poems and gifts. Um, and this causes Douglas um, to complain in his usual belligerent tone. Um, Pauline is a dear, but I wish you wouldn't send me her love letters to you. I don't like them and I think it is rather unkind of you. I shan't forgive you unless you write by turn of post and tell, uh, tell me you love me more than her and more than anyone else. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and so this, you know, Vivian recounts this affair in A Woman Appeared to Me, um, calling Custance Dagmar, as I've said. Um, and she also describes her as having colouring um, like old Saxe porcelain. So even though Custance is there and a woman appeared to me, she's described often using Scandinavian or German um, connotations. Um, and this is true of several characters in a woman appeared to me, that they are often depicted as different kinds of nationalities to um, their real life counterparts. So you've got Ione is described as Florentine repeatedly, when actually she's based on Violet Shiletto, who was an American. 
Um, and a, a woman appeared to me doesn't actually have a specific geographical location. So it's actually, it is a real amalgamation of uh, various European types, but also uh, a loose kind of decadent orientalizing um, that does that does Katerina um, talked about yesterday. You know, it's, it can read as very uncomfortable, particularly you know, particularly to a reader now. Um, and deciding whether this is you know a cosmopolitan hybridity or orientalist appropriation um, in the way that some of these characters are written about. Um, Another thing to say about a woman appeared to me as well is that there's a lot of talk of, of um, Sappho and Mytilene as well. Um, and of course, um, as Hawthorne also observes, um, in Sappho's group, many women from different um, countries came together and lived on Lesbos together and became lesbians. And so this was a place where a sexual identity and a national identity became one. And you could actually remake your national identity through joining a group um, affiliated by sexuality. So this is something that Hawthorne suggests was very inspirational to Vivian in wanting to um, reimagine her own identity. Just to finish off, I think the idea of Custance's Englishness is something I need to interrogate a lot more. And I've discovered that she was um, actually uh, very influenced by, by French literature, which you know should be kind of obvious. Um, so I'm sure she was reading um, Baudelaire and, and all sorts. Um, but she particularly mentions um, the French poet Anna de Noailles. Um, and this was a, a letter I came across to John Lane, um, where she uh, writes, I enclose a French poem for the dedication to my book. And this is, this is much later, her last book. It is by the Comtesse Mathe de Noailles, and she is allowing me to use it. We each of us admire the other's work, and I think in this poem she has most beautifully said all that a woman should say of her songs. Anyhow, it is what I wanted to say. Um, and she mentions a, another time um, a beautiful French woman poet that she's friends with. So I think that this went beyond just uh, her reading Noir's work and enjoying it. I think that they actually had um, more of a detailed relationship, and I, I, I really want to look into that a bit more. This is the, this is the dedication, by the way, and I apologise for the lack of translation. I couldn't come across a decent translation in time for this paper, but um, it begins, I write, for the day when I will not be. Um, so, so just to conclude then, um, I want to uh, emphasise the way that all three women transgress national definitions in, in various ways, and their vision of utopian sexuality encompasses not only decadent Paris, but ancient Greece, Renaissance Italy, um, even Turkey. Uh, Vivian later wrote uh, letters to an ambassador's wife in Constantinople, uh, Karime Turkan Pasha, and it turns out that these letters may be simply fictional exercises, not not as true correspondence. So she was engaging um, in thinking about Turkey at this time as well. Um, so beyond Paris Lesbos, uh, this sapphic imaginary crosses national, uh, geographical and cultural borders. Uh, and these women were really just forging inspiration from as many diverse materials as they could get their hands on. Mm -hmm. <laughs>